Well, as you're finding your seat, let's go ahead and turn together to our sermon text for this morning, which is Psalm 6. As I mentioned two weeks ago, when I'm preaching during the summer, I enjoy turning our attention to the Psalms when others are here preaching. Of course, they have the freedom to to go elsewhere, and we were in uh, the Gospels last week with Colin, but while I'm back with you this morning, again, I want to turn our attention to the Psalms. I enjoy looking at them during the summer months and uh, reflecting again on all the things they have to say for us. And so this morning, we'll look at the sixth Psalm. It's printed for you there in the bulletin as well on page 9. But again, hear the word of God. David, the psalmist, writes, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever and ever. Amen. If you notice here in Psalm 6, similar to a fan, maybe you have one of these in your house, a fan that oscillates, one of those floor fans, a fan that oscillates back and forth, David here, as he writes and as he prays, oscillates back and forth between his present experience, and you can hear some of the emotion there, he oscillates between his present experience and then what he knows to be true about God. In other words, he oscillates between the doubts and the questions that his present circumstance produce in his mind, but then the answers that God's faithfulness and character produce and provide, but are just simply easy to lose sight of when we are in the middle of difficulties. And we notice that right there in verse 1. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. The temptation here for David in his trouble, and the temptation for David in his trial, undefined as it is here, we don't know exactly what he has in mind. There are times in the Psalms where they're connected to actual Contexts elsewhere in the Old Testament or the story of David. Here, in his temptation or his trial, you know, his trouble, 
undefined as it is here, the temptation that he faces is to believe that the trouble in his life is a result of God being mad at him or God being vindictive toward him. Notice that there. David here is tempted to believe that whatever difficulty he is experiencing is the result of divine anger or it is the result of divine wrath. Rebuke me not in your anger. Discipline me not in your wrath. This is a pervasive human inclination even down into our lives as Christians today. Isn't that true? Have you ever believed that something that you are dealing with that is difficult in your life is a result of God being mad at you? Have you ever been tempted in your trouble to believe that God holds grudges like we do and so then is repaying us for certain things? This is a pervasive human inclination even down into the lives of us as Christians today. And in fact, if you remember... We even see examples of it in the Gospels. We see an example of it in Christ's own ministry. You see it in John 9. Let me remind you of this story, John 9. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, but night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, Jesus spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go and wash in the pool of Siloam. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Again, we see an example there in John 9 of this idea that whatever difficulty is in our lives, whatever trouble or affliction is in our lives is possibly the result of God being vindictive towards us, of God being mad at us. That's what the disciples basically ask Jesus. What did this man do wrong? How did he screw up? How did he violate your law? How did, or was it his parents? Was it his distant cousins, you know? Is it, you know, how many degrees of separation in order to ascertain how and why God is repaying this man in this way? And Jesus says, that's not, the, that's not the issue. That's not the issue. Again, the belief that our trials and our trouble, great or small, are a result of God's anger or wrath is to believe that God is a divine bookkeeper who is logging in our lives debits and credits, working tit for tat. It's to believe that he is a temperamental God like that of the surrounding pagan nations that Israel found themselves in the midst of when one like David writes this psalm. Or like the human tendency, again, that we all have to be grudge keepers. We have people in our lives like that, do we not? who are always walking on eggshells around because we may have just unknowingly, you know, upset them and, and, and heaven forbid we upset them because here comes their wrath or their cold shoulder, you know, the grudge keeping, again, that we can do as humans, we oftentimes will, will attribute to God and his character as well. 
Now, let me stop for a second. That's not to say, of course, that Scripture doesn't teach that sin itself can have corrosive results in our lives. We know that. It's not to say that that Scripture doesn't teach this, that, that sin can and does have corrosive results in our lives. Scripture does teach that we can often reap what we ourselves sow as sinners, right? Sin, as we know, can be deceptive, and it can be misleading, and it can be underhanded, and it it complicates our lives. It turns us inward. Sometimes in our sin, we get more than we bargained for, but that's our doing. That's our doing, not God's. Because Scripture also teaches us, thankfully, (laughs) thankfully, that God, as the divine bookkeeper, if you will, has settled accounts, and he did so at the cross. That God, as the divine bookkeeper, did settle accounts, and he did so at the cross, and in doing so, he proves himself then to be the great deliverer. Not the great bookkeeper, who we fear, who's going to bring a spiritual audit into our lives, and we're going to come up short but he proves himself at the cross to be the great deliverer. Colossians 2 puts it this way. And you and I, right, we who were dead in our trespasses and the uncircumcision of our flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This God set aside, nailing it to the cross. Robert Capon, a now deceased Episcopalian um, priest and author who I've quoted before, puts it this way. The human race is positively addicted to keeping records and remembering scores. What we call our life is, for the most part, simply the juggling of accounts in our heads. And yet, if God has announced anything in Jesus It is that he, for one, has pensioned off the bookkeeping department permanently. The trouble and the trials that come our way are not a result of God returning wrath for our wrongdoing because that wrath was poured out in full upon Jesus in our place. And just as our sin was imputed to him, we know that his favor as the Son of God, the only begotten from the Father, was then imputed to us. Which is why we can sing songs like we have sung here before. Remember the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul? We sing that from time to time. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Now you see, the trials and troubles that come our way, Jesus tells us there in John 9, are the means by which God can glorify himself. As Jesus said, again, with a man born blind, and how does God glorify himself? How does he do that? Well, in the case of the believer, it's by showing grace. 
It's by showing grace. And as we know, when it comes to salvation, again, when it comes to Jesus being the savior of mankind or Jesus being the savior of sinners, that grace, in a sense, is one size fits all. His blood, his, his, his meritorious work on the cross is for all who believe. It, it's one size fits all, if I can use that phrase for a minute. But what we begin to see as Christians and learn is that his continual grace, as it is applied or dispensed into specific situations of our lives, is not one size fits all, but it's up to his providence and his provision in and through the individual and unique circumstances that we all face. Again, for the man born blind in John 9, it looked one way. For David here, it looks another, and for you and I, it can look even another still. But regardless of our individual predicaments, the response in general that we can always expect from him when we find ourselves in in trouble or find ourselves in trial is, again, the response of him, not as the divine bookkeeper, but as we've now seen, the great deliverer. And hear that in verses 2 and 3. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Again, David here recognizes that his salvation doesn't lie in God's wrath needing to be assuaged or, 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 or turned. That's already happened. God has taken care of that, and David learns that in prophetic form, in, in shadow form, if you will, through things like the sacrificial system. That's how we know the saints of old understood this, God's provision, God's atonement. And of course, we know it as the clear reality of the cross as Christians. No, instead, David's salvation comes from the character of God himself and his grace. And notice then how honestly David then opens up to God when he, when he understands this. When he understands that he's truly heard. He's truly heard. Well, David here then understands, again, in prophetic form, in, in songwriting form, what the Apostle Paul will, will later make clear in doctrinal form in his letter to the Romans, that if God didn't spare his own son, but again, settled accounts through Christ, if God didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us willingly, then will not along with him, he give us all things. And so into this safe place, if you will, David opens up and notice how he admits that he is troubled to his very core. His bones ache, his soul languishes. And it forces us then to ask a second question. If we are tempted at times to believe that God is mad at us, which now hopefully we've seen is not the case if we are found in Christ, Then another question this psalm forces us to ask is, do we ever, like David, pray this honestly to God? Do we? Do I? Do I ever, with this sort of just visceral honesty, ever pray to God? If he isn't mad at me and he isn't 
vindictive. And if I don't have to, you know, kind of butter him up, sort of like, you know, he's a genie in the lamp that I have to persuade, you know, to come to my aid. And I have to flatter, again, like some fickle pagan deity. If I don't have to do that because I am found in Christ, can I come to him unfiltered? Can I come to him, again, with this visceral honesty, It's a question for us all to ask because think about even in your own life, who do you talk the most honestly with? Who do you open up to the most and let your guard down with the most? It's those who know you the best, but in knowing you the best, all your dirty laundry and everything still love you, still love you. And this is God for David. He comes to him unfiltered, unrefined, unpolished, Remember the glamour shots? Is that still a thing? We can go to like Sears and take a glamour shots. Anybody done that? Maybe have like old family photos. I don't know if you can still do that, right? Well, what I love about David here, and what I love about David in most of the Psalms, to be honest, is that this is not the glamour shot, you know, airbrushed prayer. It's not the perfect lighting prayer. But as you can see here, it's the groggy kind of bedhead, no makeup prayer. Always with David. Always. And so David, in such a condition of honesty, asks God to turn and deliver him. Verse 4, turn, O Lord, and deliver my life. Save me. Why? How? On what basis? Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. He asks God to turn and incline his power towards him. And again, not because God has to be persuaded. Instead, David calls on God to incline his power towards him in the present based on God's love and faithfulness in the past. That's the idea. You hear that, you hear that word, that phrase, so often in the Psalms, steadfast love immovable, immutable, unchanging, rock solid, reliable, love. Well, where does that reputation come from? Where does that Yelp review of God's love come from? That Google review of God's, where does it come from? Well, again, because it's been steadfast in the past. There's a track record of it. And so David here, again, goes before God to incline his ear because he's already seen God be faithful to him in the past and, been, and, 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 and be steadfast and guiding. Speaking of great hymns, think about how Amazing Grace puts it. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. This grace that brought me safe thus far and grace will lead me home. You see, David doesn't bank on his ability or his deserving. Rather, he trusts God will incline his ear and save because God has already done so time and time again. Again, the love is steadfast. The reputation is flawless. The resume of God's faithfulness is impeccable. To again use a phrase from the Apostle Paul, the good works that God begins, he carries towards 
completion, to think about the image in the Gospels. His eyes are even on the sparrow that falls to the ground. And again, if David understood this, and if David saw that to be true in his life and in the history of his people, how much more can we say that as Christians today? Because we've seen the cross. If David could say that, again, how much more can we say it as Christians because we now have seen the fullness of the story and the fullness of the picture. Christ, the son of David, on the cross. Christ, the son of David, and the empty tomb. And again, when we realize this about God, it bolsters our faith, it, it firms our resolve. And when God glorifies himself through being gracious, the question then is, how do we glorify him in return? Can we repay him? No, we can't. We know that. But we can glorify him through praise. Through praise. Look at verse 5. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, this Old Testament idea of the afterlife, who will give you praise? In death, there's no remembrance of you. In Sheol, God, who, who, will, who will give you praise? Now, admittedly, this is perhaps the one place in the psalm where, in my opinion, David seems to be playing the sympathy card just a little bit. Remember, we, we don't have to butter God up. Remember that? We don't have to persuade him. We don't have to flatter him. We don't have to, you know, he's not the genie in the lamp. But in my opinion, this is the one you know, verse where just perhaps David seems to be playing the sympathy card. God, if you don't spare me, that, that's one less voice to, to praise you, right? God, if you don't spare me, that's one less voice in the choir, right, to, to, to praise you. It's the equivalent, in my mind, of sort of those spiritual puppy dog eyes, right? We have a dog, as you know, named Jasper, this maniac of a puppy, okay, who makes a mess of the house and you want to yell and scream and scold him, but then he gives you that big, shaggy puppy dog face, you know, and those puppy dog eyes. And it's as if he's saying, you could get rid of me, right? You could take me to the pound, but then who will look at you with such a cute face, right? Who will give you the, the shaggy, you know, kisses, right? Okay, it's as if, you know, that's kind of what's happening here. In a sense, David seems to be playing the sympathy card here. And yet, if you really look at it, though, through the proper lens, it's not sympathy, but it's instructive to us in the reminder of what our ultimate purpose in life, this side of death, is. Did you notice that? It actually instructs us as to what our purpose is. Every day we draw breath. Every day that we are this side of the life to come. Because we can make life about a lot of things. But at the end of the day, the days that we are given are to be used in praise. They're to be used in praise and in service to God. 
Again, life can be about a lot of things, and a lot of those things are good. We want to we grow old and see our, our families raised, and we want to you know, make a home and a life, and we want to see the, the beauty of the world. Again, all those things are good, but whatever it is that we are given, we are supposed to return back to God in praise and in service and in devotion to him. And so it's interesting, again, how this verse can remind us afresh of that. It reminds us of our ultimate purpose. You know, many people go through life not knowing what their purpose is. I've said it before. There's a reason why Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Life, is, or at least was at some point, the greatest selling book in the history of books. <laughs> why? Because people are searching for their purpose. We want to know our purpose. You could argue that half the problem with our culture today is that we have no idea of purpose. We're wandering online and we're wandering in social media and we're wandering through all of the craziness of society and changing cultural norms and we don't know what our purpose is and we're unmoored and we're untethered. Well, here we're actually told in a very simple form. Maybe we don't want to hear it, but we're told what our actual purpose is that whatever God gives to us and wherever he puts us, we are to glorify him. We are to blossom, if you will, where we have been planted. We are to return back to him, whatever he has given to us in this life, in praise. And it's also a reminder of how when God does deliver us time and time and time again, like he did here for David, Again, think about amazing grace when we are delivered from toils and snares and dangers, whether they be outward or whether they be inward. It has this way of being sort of a spiritual smelling salt in our life, doesn't it? It, it wakes us up afresh to our true purpose. When we see God's deliverance again and again and again, it, it, it rouses us from our lethargy. It's this spiritual smelling salt that wakes us up once again to the goodness of of God, and so we praise him afresh. And we praise him with renewed energy because we look back and see how he delivered us. We look back and we again see his steadfast love. And so we again praise him. Another song that we often sing, the goodness of God, puts it this way, I love you, Lord, for your mercy never fails me. All my days I have been held in your hands. From the moment that I wake up until I lay my head, I will sing of the goodness of God. All my life you have been faithful. All my life you have been so, so good with every breath that I am able. That's the idea contained here with David. With every breath that he has, with every breath that I'm able, this side of the life to come, I will sing of the goodness of God. Oh God, in Sheol, who will praise you? But while I'm here, still, David says, that's what I'll do. So deliver me, God, because I will again praise you for your unfailing love. And then again, the fan turns. Remember it oscillates here, David? Verse six and seven. I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. So you go, what, what, wait a second, David, you were just there. And now he goes back to his experience again. He oscillates. I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Notice there, 
He mentions this furniture in his life, apparently. His bed, his couch. Is this one piece of furniture? You know, is this like one of those convertible sofas in David's apartment or the palace? Is this a futon? You know, what, what, what's, what's going on here? Well, we don't know. I'm kidding, of course. We don't know. But what do we know then from these verses? Well, I love the picture of David that it captures. What does he say there again? I am weary with my moaning. I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. You know why I love this verse? Because what a challenge it is to the caricature of masculinity that we often see promoted today. Do you notice that? Oftentimes, masculinity, even biblical masculinity, sometimes is, is mischaracterized as this sort of unflinching ability to never show weakness, right? You gotta be poker-faced if you're a man. Can't show your emotions, can't let anybody in. How many people do you think have died inside because of that falsehood? How many relationships do you think have died because of that? How many wives are left out in the cold by husbands who can't or won't emote or show weakness? How many children have the false pretense of fathers who are afraid to cry? Fathers who are afraid to, again, show weakness or ask for help. More to the point here, how does this challenge the caricature of David we often see as the, you know, muscled youth who slew the giant, you know, giant killer tattooed on his bicep, you know, got the barbed wire tattoo, and it says giant killer underneath that, right? Well, again, David might be all of those things, but at the very least here we know that he's also a man unafraid to show his true colors, unafraid to admit weakness and need unafraid to acknowledge his limitations, even as the king of Israel, but acknowledge that there is a heavenly king whose strength is limitless. And that's why, that's why David is the man after God's own heart. He's unafraid to, to, to repent, you know, viscerally. He's unafraid to, to lay his soul bare and admit Admit his struggles, admit where he needs help, admit his weakness. Again, even as the king who he eventually becomes, he has limitations and he has weaknesses. But there's a heavenly king whose strength is limitless. And because of that then, this heavenly king who is also our heavenly father desires that we come to him with earnest, again, unrefined, unsugarcoated prayers an admission of our weakness, unbridled cries as his children. One of my favorite authors, Eugene Peterson, I've shared this before, but I come to it time and time again, says this, that Psalms is a magnetic center. It pulls every scrap and dimension of human experience into the presence of God. 
The Psalms are indiscriminate in their subject matter. Complaint and thanks, doubt and anger, outcries of pain. We sit here with David. Outbursts of joy, quiet reflection, boisterous worship. If it's human, it qualifies. Any human experience, feeling, or thought can be prayed. It is the means by which we get everything into our lives out in the open before God. Eventually, it all must be prayed if it is to retain or recover its essential humanity. The totality of God's concern is with the totality of our humanity. Love that reminder. But then lastly, notice how the psalm closes. Depart from me, verse 8. All you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. What a way to end. Again, think about that image. If David is that oscillating fan, thankfully here as the psalm closes, he returns to center. He's been going back and forth between his experience and between what he knows to be true about God. But thankfully here at the end, he returns to center. If you notice, his soul and ours as well as the reader's experienced in the cool breeze of the gospel. David starts out fearful and uncertain. He starts out doubting God's goodness, focusing on his guilt, keenly aware that he only deserves the wrath and the discipline of God. And yet, in the end here, what does he do? And when we experience such feelings, what are we to do? We once again preach the good news to ourselves. The Lord, he said, hears our plea. The Lord accepts our prayer. The enemy will not ultimately prevail because Jesus has. David saw time and time again, again, God deliver him from the clutches of his foes. And we as Christians have seen God deliver us from the greatest of foe, that of sin and death through the work, like I said a minute ago, of the son of David himself, Christ Jesus And so our hope and our promise and our encouragement is that because of Christ, the workers of evil will ultimately depart. The enemies of the gospel will be ashamed and greatly troubled. And Emmanuel, God with us, will never depart. Will never depart, never leave us or forsake us. And because of Christ, we will never be put to shame, even in our failure and lapses of faith. Because if God is for us, then who can be against us? I'll read this from the Apostle Paul as we close. Paul writes in Romans, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. 
For we know the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly. Think about David here, groaning, right? We groan inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? For he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised at the right hand of God, interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors, through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for the needed reminder of this psalm. We thank you for one like David, who was unashamed to unburden himself in your presence through prayer, being honest and open with his struggles, and casting himself wholly upon your mercy. Oh Lord, what an example that we have here, would you help us in similar fashion to follow after you with all of our hearts, to look to you in faith, to look to you in prayer, and ultimately, again, to bask in your deliverance as the one who settled accounts at the cross, and again, who now dispenses favor and blessings upon us because of Christ. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you again and ask for your blessing. In Christ's name, amen.